0: The energy was palpable, as the New York Times reported yesterday. Charlene Lass had rushed home from her work as a nurse to Bowie, Maryland, after her 12-hour shift at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Amy Smith, a nurse practitioner at Northwell Urgent Care in New York, was keyed up after a full day at work. And Aliki R. a registered nurse, put aside her exam studies. Why? For what? For an ancient Greek text, the great Greek tragedy, Antigone, with its poetic power for its rhyme and meter. The New York Times reports the women were preparing for the Nurse Antigone, a dramatic reading of a translation of Sophocles' Antigone that was to be presented by Zoom last night by Theatre of War Productions. Brian Durries, a founder of Theatre of War Productions, said he wanted to present a play that specifically was able to shine a light on the grief and anguish of nurses who have been held on the front line of the pandemic for two years. It's a play about not being able to live up to your own standards of care and about deferred grief, which I think is the moral injury of the pandemic, Durries explained, It's an injury that has been visited upon nurses, not just because they lost their own, because of their profession, but because they were also proxy family members for people in isolation. Nurse Amy Smith says she felt like this was an opportunity to finally process some of the emotions and themes that she and nurses across the world have been too busy to tackle. A lot of us, especially in nursing, have to keep moving, she said. There's no time to stop and say, hey, let's reflect on what just happened. Words from a report in the New York Times, March 17, 2022, by Alicia Gupta. It is just such energy and hunger that poet Mark Doty has sensed in the nurses in his writing workshops, as he tells us. In about 1978, I was teaching composition at a community college in Des Moines, Iowa. And I noticed that the students in my expository writing classes who were most invested, those who really understood that the writing process was useful to them as human beings, who weren't just doing it for a grade, who realized something important happened to them when they wrote. The students who most demonstrated this were the nurses. I was so impressed by the level of urgency and investment in their work. And I thought it had to do with living every day in conditions which for most of us would be a crisis, being up against the limits of mortality, of human frailty, and how intense those moments are for their patients and families and for their fellow professionals who were working with them. That told me something about the uses of writing, that for people who are in that kind of position, First of all, they are able to write with a real sense of necessity, which communicates itself to the reader. Their writing really did something important for them, too. It gave them a space and a place to concretize their thoughts, to put it on paper, and to shape it more clearly. I think the more we articulate what we feel and what we think, the more real we become to ourselves. Words of award-winning poet Mark Doty in an interview with Hospital Drive from the University of Virginia. Mark Doty is a distinguished poet and essayist, and he is author of nine books of poetry, including Deep Lane from 2015, Fire to Fire, new and selected poems which won the 2008 National Book Award, My Alexandria, winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the T.S. Eliot Prize in the U.K., he is also the author of four memoirs, the New York Times best-selling What is the Grass, and that has to do with Walt Whitman's poetry, Dog Ears, Firebird, and Heaven's Coast, as well as a book about craft and criticism, The Art of Description, World into Word. Doty has received two NEA fellowships, Guggenheim and Rockefeller Foundation fellowships, a Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Award, and so many other instances of recognition of his talents. He will be visiting the Wyoming Valley as a guest of King's College in Wilkes-Barre for a public reading and book signing on March 24th at 7.30 p.m. in the Burke Auditorium on the King's College campus. He will spend time teaching an afternoon workshop for the program's writing students, and he will have that book signing and reading and the reading is at 7.30 and free and open to the public. We had a chance to speak by phone with Mark Doty about the power of writing in distressing times.
1: What happens to us when there is a continual loss is that they're just going to chant, finish with one grief. You know, you don't come to the end before the next thing is facing you, and that must have been the case for people with it. The coal mining situation has certainly been the case with several pandemics. And it's, I guess, the case again, I suppose, with those who feel really personally connected to Ukraine. And even if you're not personally connected, you know, here we are confronting those awful images and just feeling so powerless. So I understand. I think that if you're not able to dwell with your grief because you're going on to the next thing that must be done in the face of tragedy, it becomes a very difficult burden to carry.
0: You talk so well about. If nothing else, in the face of it, we can at least have language to work
1: with. It's one thing we have some control over, you know, are the words that you choose to try to name your experience and try to give some shape to it. And even though language is a very ordinary medium, this is the thing you use to order lunch, you know, or to say hello to the cashier at the grocery store. It is a medium of such incredible power because it defines the edges of things. It changes our point of view. My friend Jane Hirschfield, who's a marvelous poet, calls lyric poetry a technology of shift. And what she means by that is, is this is a means of shifting your point of view, of seeing something a little differently. And that is something that is of remarkable power. If you can learn to look at your own experience and look at the experience of others and see it with a clearer sight, a revised sight kind of sight. It's one of the things that I really cherish about being a poet. It's an opportunity to create new sorts of vision for myself and hopefully for others as well
0: lemons. Do we see lemons in the same way after you've taken us through lemons? <laughs>
1: Thank you. You know, I have a wonderful friend, a painter named Richard Baker, who he was a still-life painter, and I didn't know one summer that he was reading the book and then I went to his show in the fall of his recent work, and here was lemon peel after lemon peel coming from martini glasses, and he had really taken that language to heart. I I was so fascinated by the bravura ways that Dutch still life painters in the 17th century represented lemons. You know, they they would do that wonderful thing where you run a paring knife all the way around the fruit, and so you have this hanging spiral with light passing through it, and you see both the transparent parts and the the white, more translucent parts uh, that are a little thicker. It's just a a real way to show off for a painter. It's a wonderful gesture. It's a celebration of something about life, too, about look how complex the world is. Look how much we can see.
0: That's what you help us to see. You have described grieving and mourning and going without being oriented in the world. And yet you can write about lemon peels and help us see that it doesn't end at the abyss.
1: It doesn't. And, and, you know, here's, I think, For me, the the, the trick to managing any of this, and I don't mean to say that I am good at grieving, because who is? I've been knocked flat before and will be again. But if you shut down one feeling, if you say, I will not face my grief, I will not face this sorrow, you wind up shutting down all of them to some degree. You know, you, you can't selectively edit out emotion. So that means if we're really going to be participants in our lives, if we're really going to experience the world, We have to be willing to be sorrowful. We have to be willing to experience the depth of loss and and the great misery of loss. And if you can do that, if you can find a way to allow yourself that, then you have the opportunity to experience joy later on as well, and real pleasure in the world.
0: You write so beautifully about that moment in St. John the Divine when you approach the altar that's dedicated to those who have lost Mm -hmm. their lives in the AIDS epidemic and right. how you didn't realize that that's what you needed at that moment, and you sat on the stone.
1: Yes. I was, I was carrying so much of a sense of, of grief around, and this was before I lived in New York City. I was here to visit, and, and I didn't know that I was looking for a place to carry my sorrow to, but there I am in this beautiful cathedral. I come upon that altar and sit down, and suddenly the tears start, and they get worse, and the sobs get deeper, and I'm feeling... Just immobilized by that grief, knowing that that altar represents not just the person I loved most in this world, but so many beloveds. And a very wonderful thing happened. I, I am there uh, on my knees, immobilized, and a woman asks me if I need a Kleenex, and, and she looks at her purse doesn't have anything, and she says, "I'll get you something." She goes out and comes back with some of those stiff little napkins you get, you know, when you buy a hot dog on the street in New York City or uh, an ice cream cone. And just that gift that a stranger goes and brings me something because she knows how it feels, gets me through it, you know? I I get to the bottom and start to come back up because somebody makes a gesture. It has so much power. And you can't, until you say what you're feeling, until you show it in some way, how can you have any company with it? You're alone with it until it's spoken, really, or sobbed
0: out. And you mention the difference between writing that experience down eventually or at some point in a journal and Mm -hmm. then taking it beyond that to share it with one or another or others?
1: Yeah, journaling is, is a great start. You know, it, it's a way to just get the feeling down on the page. But when you read another person's journals, it, it, unless they're wonderful writers, it tends to be less than, than satisfying, less than fulfilling. And that's because in a journal, you're speaking to yourself. It's not the same thing as speaking to the world or or one other, because why bother to make it, to say it exactly right? Why bother to make it beautiful if it's only for you? To my mind, all good writing, fine writing, implies an audience. You know, you think about poets like Emily Dickinson, who had such small audiences and yet had the most constant degree of craft. She knew that people would read those poems. You know, when Walt Whitman published his first edition of Leaves of Grass in 1855 and apparently sold no copies at all, he published a second edition a year later. And he did that because he knew that that work would reach someone, he, or hoped it would, Hopes it all his heart would. So that kind of faith leads one to make one's work as strong and as clear as you can to create experience for others because real writing is a gift. You know, it's something you give to someone else so that they can hold it too, so they can see who you are. So writing in a journal, frankly, just makes me tired. (laughs) I feel like, okay, let off a lot of steam. Writing for someone is something else entirely because it makes me feel I've made a shape around a particular part of my experience, and now I can stand back from it and see it, and others can stand and see it as well, if I'm lucky.
0: But you've also observed as you've gone along that as your experience has changed and as your life and world has changed then your way of creating poems has changed as well. Yeah, it, you know, I yeah, I
1: live a different life. When I first started writing poetry, and I felt that nobody was paying any attention at all, which is pretty much true. You know, I would send things out to magazines, and they'd come back, and, and now and then an editor would take something. But I didn't feel a sense of anybody looking over my shoulder. And it was about when I published my third book of poems that things changed, and I began to have a much wider audience. And that was a whole new feeling, you know. It, well, somebody will be reading this and will be taking it seriously in a couple of different ways. One would be, you know, the other artists and literary critics who would be taking it seriously. But more importantly to me, were the audience members who were making use of what I had to say. It was in some way important in their lives. So my book Heaven's Coast was published um, just about a year after protease inhibitors had been developed, the first treatment for HIV, which would allow people to live much longer lives, and. It was a remarkable moment because all of the people who had been working so hard, giving their lives to caring for others, caring for the ill and the dying, suddenly breathed a big sigh of relief and then felt completely numb because we had been so utterly obsessed, given ourselves over to taking care of people in a deep, deep crisis. And the book came out about a year into that numbness. And it was a remarkable experience for me. I remember going to read at the San Francisco Book Fair, which was held in a big auditorium, and giving a reading uh, to lots of people, then standing in line to sign books, and looking up at some point and realizing that line went way back towards the back of the hall because so many people were there holding copies of this and wanting to talk to me. And they wanted to talk because this was something that tapped into such unspoken grief. They had been carrying such burdens for so long and suddenly they weren't carrying them and now it was possible to feel, now it was possible not to be waiting for the next crisis but to really pay attention to how it felt to be in that position and the book spoke to them in that way. And what I loved about talking to people in this line was that people mostly said the same kind of thing which is that your book said how I felt. You, you gave words to what was happening for me, except my story is a little bit different, and here it is. And people told me about how oh, all kinds of losses, and how the book had been, the words of the book had been something that they could use to gain courage, that they could read to the dying themselves, that they were, were use at funeral services, that, in which they found consolation later. And I never had any idea that people would put my work to use in that way, you know? I think if you grow up in America and you become a poet, you don't expect that poetry is going to be something that is part of people's daily lives, that that an eager audience will be waiting for those poems. That turned out to be the case, and it was a a real education for me and a transformation, because it, it meant I had to really lean into my own work to think, why am I doing this? Of what use is it? Who's it for? And in what way can it matter?
0: And that's a perfect example of how people need literature and maybe don't know that they're craving what literature <laughs> can allow for them, as you've just described that. Allow them Actually, to feel and live, right?
1: Yes. How, how do I see how to live? How do others live? How do people cope with the challenges and the pains that life inevitably brings us? And I don't think we can know that except through literature. It's our chance to arrive at different kinds of empathy and understanding, to feel something of what it's like to be in somebody else's skin.
0: And right now, when we're focused so on Ukraine and Russia, we know about the Samizdat and all those important authors and the way that literature was circulated surreptitiously because it was so important in Central Europe.
1: Absolutely. And we know about, about the, the history and the behavior of tyrants and bullies. We know what it is to be under the thumb of, of such a government and such, um, such oppression. And, and so it's not um, something we imagine from a distance. It's not something we take lightly. And between you know, the videos on the news and the reports that come to us, we can really enter into something of what that must be like. And therefore... Attempt to act. Attempt to uh, reach in any way we can to help.
0: And that's the key, isn't it? It's not just sit there and wallow. It's experience to then bring it to the world in some way.
1: Absolutely, because we respond to other people differently when they become real to us, you know. And I don't think that happens all by itself. Uh, it, it's too easy to think of others as, as remote, as, as far away, or having things so different from ourselves. And what literature teaches us is that, yes, there is all kinds of rich, interesting idiosyncrasy and particularity, but that we also have so much in common, always. To be human is to be human, and good fine literature stands on the ground of of humanity, our commonness.
0: And I think you're someone who can help us understand what real beauty can mean to us in our lives.
1: Well, I'm very honored by that. Thank you very much. Um, It has been crucial to me to allow beauty, concern with beauty into my work, and to think about what is beautiful to me, which is not necessarily what we're told is beautiful or what culture might lead me to expect. I like looking for grace and charm and the attention to beauty in anything, you know, and in small details and in odd places. It's one of the things that I think of being an urban gay man will teach you that, you know, beauty may not be what you expect it to be, and you may find it between the cracks, you know, or in the gutter.
0: I wrote down this. You write, a scintillant blackness shining blackly. Is that my work to point to the world and say, see how darkly it sparkles?
1: Thank you. With a description, I, I believe, of taking a, a dark, gleaming winter pond in Provincetown not near the end of Cape Cod and taking it as a, a figure for experience that, that, you know, everything we see is shadowed in some way by its own tendency to disappear Everyone, we know, everyone we love, every being alive at this moment with us here on this planet will die. That's the way it is. That's how this world is structured, as a, a permanent position of impermanence. And we have to embrace that. Right? It's what we have. And we have to, we can't try to install some kind of permanence that doesn't exist. We have to instead find what we can love in this contingency, in this world of contingency and uh, possibility. And to think, what the, if everything will disappear, what are the possibilities for loving? What are the possibilities for what we can make out of that? I nominate poems as one thing we can make out of it, and there are many other possibilities, too.
0: The Distinguished Poet and Essayist Mark Doty. He spoke with us in anticipation of a visit next week to King's College in wilkes the King's College English Department Visiting Writers Program will host Dodi, and he will teach an afternoon workshop for the program's writing students and then later on the evening of March 24th, that's Thursday, he will take part in a public reading and book signing at 7.30 in Burke Auditorium on the King's College campus. The program is free and open to the public. The Burke Auditorium is on the first floor of the McGowan School of Business. Mark Doherty is the author of nine poetry books, including the National Book Award winner that is titled Fire to Fire, and he's received many NEA fellowships, Guggenheim and Rockefeller Foundation fellowships. And if you'd like to know more about him, blueflowerarts.com, blueflowerarts.com, Com. And for more information about King's, its writing program, and the visit of Mark Doty to King's College, kings.edu, kings.edu. And Doty is spelled D-O-T-Y, Mark Doty.